Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast at the start of this new year is a female urologist who talks about what doctors can do to improve outcomes for patients by dealing with burnout. Here to share her expertise is Diana Londonio. Diana Londonio, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted that you were able to find time in your busy schedule to share your experiences with me. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity and just having me on. It's always a pleasure to connect with physicians across the globe, but really just uh, just very grateful to be here and uh, share my story. Well, we're delighted to have you here. And the fact that you mentioned physicians is important because I want to start our conversation at that point. Why did you become a physician and why a urologist? Yeah, it's a great question. People are always curious why, because for in the U.S., 10% of the urologists are women. So there's a few of us. And so it's not the majority. And so why would we want to do that? And, you know, that, that's something I'll answer. But really going back to medicine, why medicine? For me, it was really, I saw my father was presumed to be diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. And he lived in Mexico. I lived in the U.S. So the last time I saw him, he had really changed from his very good-looking appearance, very prime, very proper, always taking care and pride in his, you know, demeanor and how he was looking, and very strong and, you know, very, like I said, good-looking for a Latin culture to have light eyes is something that, you know, sort of like, oh, people really pay attention. My father was very good-looking, blue eyes, this olive skin, and very, you know, strong. And when I last saw him, he was basically paralyzed and he looked very different, very weak and paralyzed. And so then we kind of pieced together that this was metastatic prostate cancer, although it was very taboo, not talked about. And that happens, you know, very much so in some Latin cultures. We just don't talk about these topics, but they really do affect. And so, you know, obviously screening is very important, treatment, talking and being open about this. But I saw him just, you know, in diapers and a wheelchair and paralyzed. And it was very important for him to like make sure his hair was combed, he had his cologne on and really hanging on to that dignity when we are ill. Because I think we are sometimes think like, oh, you're ill, oh, you're paralyzed, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. But it's so important to maintain that in illness. And sometimes in, you know, the hospital, we get those gowns, they're ugly, they're not attractive, half of our behind is showing, we're stripped of all our things that sort of make us comfortable or that kind of bring us that security sort of blanket. And so I really saw that that was really important to acknowledge, keep, maintain, and sort of bring like a little bit of dignity into disease. So I just kind of had that little seed in my mind. And when I last saw him, I came back to the States and it was the time that I was in college, really trying to decide what I wanted to do. And I was sort of already in a possible pre-med path because I had all these classes, but I hadn't decided really what I wanted to do. But then I really decided like I want to do medicine. And then I just started sort of the path into going into medicine at that point. And then my father passed away a few months later, but it was really just impactful to see that difference in wellness, illness, and just what was important to people when they're ill and start trying to hang on to that and acknowledge that. In terms of urology, 
you know, why did I become a urologist? I mean, it was really a process of elimination. I think sometimes we're geared a little bit more toward, towards a medical or a surgical, sort of as the first division that we kind of get to. And then I really went to surgical and it was really kind of eliminating, you know, maybe that personality is not my personality. You know, what do I want to be treating? Do I want my patients to be, you know, more awake, more in the ICU? Like, you know, if it's neurosurgery, are they really awake? Is there a lot of trauma? Is it depressing? And I really found that urology was a mix of, you know, there's happiness in the field. It's not all depressing. You can have long-term patients. I can see kids if I wanted, men, women. And I can really tailor my practice of being more heavy in the surgical or more in the office-based and procedures. And I found that interesting. And I really like the personality of urologists. So that's why I chose it. And, you know, it's, it's really fun. I really think being 10% is not a, is really something that I'm proud of. And it's sort of my superpower. I'm excited to be the 10%. And there's only so much we can grow from there. That's a good news. We can attract hopefully more women to this field that is really very rewarding. I can see that it would be rewarding. And certainly surgery is rewarding, but extraordinarily demanding as a profession. How did you find the training and how did you find your early years in your career? Surgery can be grueling. Surgery can be very long. It could be very malignant for sure. And I think that's something that I hope to change in the culture of medicine where really malignant, dehumanizing. And by that, I mean, we're really taking away the basic needs of humans, which is to pee, to eat, to sleep. And we think that this is okay. And we have to remember that, you know, especially for surgery, some of the forefathers, Halstead, you know, of surgery, you know, they were on cocaine and doped up. And so of course they could be awake for five days straight because they were on cocaine. And a lot of them kind of were addicted to this. So if you were on cocaine, of course you could stay up forever. But any human being that is not taking substances to alter how they can stay awake is very challenging. But we just don't really also talk about that in the open, that that was sort of what some of these major forefathers of surgery were doing. Or even Freud, you know, they, they were also on cocaine. So it is challenging. But there are some programs that are less you know, malignant than others. I was very fortunate. My program was definitely not malignant. It was People were very kind. Yes, the hours were long, but I never felt like it was, you know, abusive. Or the people that were like the chiefs were, you know, mean or nasty or, you know, I never felt any of that at all. But there's definitely programs that were. And I think I chose this specifically because I felt it was a program that had those qualities. But again, it may not be many people's experience for sure. And that's true and valid. But I think I didn't really have a lot to sort of say, oh, this is terrible. But I did, even since then, definitely, I didn't know the language of it, but definitely had boundaries, definitely had priorities. And to me, it was very important to find time, you know, get out on time, whenever the time was, and not linger around, go home, exercise. And I think I did my, my triathlon when I was maybe a third year resident. And, you know, that's two workouts per day, and I made time for that. I really made sure it was a priority. So for me, doing those things outside of medicine, staying active, you know, doing exercise was really important to just have something outside of medicine to really keep you sane and happy and motivated and have an outlet. So that helped me while I was training. And so I don't think my experience looking back that it was something malignant. But definitely as you go on, 
you start seeing things could change definitely, or you're not prepared to different circumstances or the role of insurance or working call. There's a lot of things that come at play later. And I think that's why it's important for physicians while they're training and after the train, definitely keep those hobbies alive. Keep that passion maybe outside of medicine, the things that you like to do alive and really prioritize time for you and learn really like boundaries, learn what those are and practice them because that's a gift for you and for others when you could have boundaries and learn to say no or no thank you. <laughs> but it's really important. And physicians sometimes have a challenge saying no and, and putting those boundaries. One of the challenges for doctors generally, and particularly doctors at the early part of their career, is that saying no essentially means I don't want this career because it's assumed that because you are not prepared to be in theater from eight in the morning until midnight, that you are not interested to get the experience that's necessary to get you over the line. This is what we hear all the time. And I hear this from my surgical juniors as well. What is your view about that? Because that is the road to burnout, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really changing the leadership. And we're all leaders. And I think we can't blame other people for sort of the problems we're having or the mindset we have, because we are either stopping that mindset or propagating that mindset. And so when you're an attending, when you're a second year, when you're a chief, you have leadership and you have ability to take care of the people kind of below you. And you don't, just because you're still in training doesn't mean you cannot take care of others around you, take care of yourself, model that behavior. And there's so many instances where you could have told your junior, hey, it's okay, go home. Like, I know you're exhausted. Like, somebody else can take care of it. So we could all do that. And we are still very committed because then we're taking care of ourselves. Because when we are working from a place of a completely empty cup, which is what we're doing, we're really not present. We're making mistakes. We are angry. We are reactive. You know, and that's not translating to good care for anybody that we truly take care of as patients really our family or really like the bigger picture because if you ask anybody that's been through burnout you know it doesn't just affect them it affects their whole family and most people think that their family is people they really care about they love and they would want to take care of and protect but you cannot do that at all when you are like in your last straw of energy and you know you're just barely surviving in many healthcare systems the notion of somebody else taking care of it just doesn't exist because the place is so badly understaffed that if the junior isn't doing it, some, there isn't somebody else who's able to do it. What's your view on that? How do we help people to deal with those toxic environments? I, I do think that there's always room to wiggle. And of course, there's always... For example, when I train, there's only two of us per year. So, of course, we can't clone it and make a third person. But there is always some way we can wiggle something. And, of course, we can't make magic. We can't clone people. But there are some places where, like, we have to ask ourselves, do we really have to do it this way? Or, like, what if we restructure something to make things different? What if? Because even when I was training, there's two of us. My co-resident broke his arm playing hockey. He had to be out for I don't know how many months. And of course, we made it work. So if you were in a toxic environment, you would have made some decisions that were 
not kind, overworking somebody to a point that was not healthy, but it wasn't done that way. We figured out ways so that there was the least impact for all of us and people could still be taking care of you know, patients and things like that or attendings that needed coverage. So it could always be done. It's just, I think we have this very rigid mindset like, oh, that's the way it is. That's all the way we've done it. This is how we do it. And we don't sort of take off the blinders and ask like, why are we doing things like this? Or what if we could do things a different way? You know, what if? And so I do think there's always room in, you know, saying that it really would be, well, that's just how we've always done it. We can't find a different way. And, you know, we got to get a little creative and we got to lead from love. And if we lead from love, we can find pockets, spaces, places, creative ways to sort of do what we can with, with the best that we can do. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Where doctors have leadership positions, there's no question that we can exercise that leadership and we can reschedule the way an outpatient clinic runs or the way a theater list is organized or who we list on that theater list for that particular day. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, you're working with managers who do not understand the system. They don't understand the consequences. They see you as a human resource to be expended at their will. And that leads to problems. Have you come across that? I have not, but I think, you know, that is definitely real. And I think that's the time to have a conversation that is sort of like a script to say, you know, I really care about my job here, my role here. I want to take the best care of my patients. But in order to do so, X, Y, and Z has to occur so that then I can, you know, X, Y, and Z. So it really has to be stated that the current working situation or the way that we're being viewed to we're just resources and we're just, you know, productivity machines is really not working. But what I do see is that people are just run down, you know, we're overworked, but nobody's speaking up. Maybe they're speaking between each other and complaining perhaps, and that's important to do so. But then you have to take it to what are we going to do? Let's get collective. Let's get everybody on board. Because if people come together and say, this is not working, not because we don't want to help, but because... I care, we need to change, and this is what I'm proposing, you come with a proposal, then I think things actually are, can be different. And I just don't see that as much. I just see a lot more of like, oh, this is terrible. They don't care about us. But then we're not speaking, coming with solutions, and nobody's going to come save you and change your schedule and say, oh, poor doctors, they're overworked. Let me fix it for you. If nobody's really complained or come together. But when you come together, there's power in the numbers. You know, what are we going to do with all the physicians in a clinic say, we cannot go on like this. It has to be a change. So I think that's step one and coming from a place of why are we doing it, coming from love and coming with solutions too. You're right, Diana. The, the issue is around about the seniority of the doctor. Somebody who is a consultant surgeon carries a voice they have influence. The hospital is not going to want to disenfranchise that person because that person is part of the profitability, if you want to put it that way, 
of that institution. Junior doctors tend to be expendable, and they're the ones who are most vulnerable when it comes to working ridiculous hours and being asked to do things which are unsafe for them and for their patients. How can we better empower those people to take agency? I guess it would depend, yeah, if there's a leader that is the one that you can go to to sort of advocate for. These are the conditions that are not working. And so you got to go to that leader and sort of say, like, this is just not working. Um, I think we all have a voice. I think that many times people in quote unquote leadership positions are placed there, especially in surgery, maybe because they're the big researchers or they're very good at the surgery, but truly having leadership skills are not really like what happens. And people that don't have the title may truly be better leaders, but we assign them because of, again, research or skill in surgery per se without others. So we can all be leaders without a title because I really do think we are in many ways. So if that leader that is there by title is not sort of exercising those skills that they were kind of anointed with, then that other person can kind of rally, can bring resources, can start a conversation about like, this is what I think needs to happen and kind of rally the troops to say, I need support. This is not working. Again, I care about my patients. I care about my family, but this, the way that this is currently at, you know, it's just not sustainable. And I want to be here. I want to be doing the best job for my patients. So sometimes we have to advocate other avenues. We also have to get creative and we just really have to ask for help. And if it's not with one, well, then go to B. And if it's not B, it's C. Uh, we can't just, with one door closing, say, oh, that's it, and just fold over. I mean, I think we have to persist, and especially when it's for our wellness. And I was thinking, because you were asking me, was I ever in a position where administration saying this or that? But, but I, when I came to my last job, I remember I came, and the pay for a call was, you know, very low, very low. And... I'm the only woman, and usually my colleagues who are men, actually, they talk about a lot about money and how much they're making in this. I mean, they really always kind of compete and, and talk about that. And it was really surprising to me that they weren't talking about how low this call compensation was, and they didn't want to do anything about it. And to me, it was, I really don't care about it as much, but I know my value. And we, this is not our value. Like, I don't want to take call for this amount of money because we're worth very much so more than we're getting. And so we need to have a conversation with the administrators of this hospital that it has to be changed or we're going to pull out of the call. And that's a bigger problem for them. And so, yeah, we had a conversation and guess what? Our call was doubled, uh, the compensation. So you have to realize there is, we have value one, we are worth it. <laughs> and there's power in numbers and you can definitely leverage. And it's not about being... I uh, mean, but you have to look at, you know, what are other people getting? What is your worth? And people have to realize that there is worth. When we come from a place of not knowing our worth, then, yeah, we're not going to speak up. We're not going to say this is not correct. This is not safe. I'm not getting enough for, for the work that I am doing. Whatever the challenge is, we have to know our worth. And I feel sometimes when we don't truly believe that, we're not going to ask. We're not going to say no. We're not going to put boundaries. We just become like doormats and people just kind of step all over us. 
because we say, oh, it's for the greater good. Oh, we're helping people. Yeah, we gotta help people, but you can't help others when you're totally, you know, depleted. It's just, it cannot happen. And this is a mindset, this is a culture, and it's about more physicians, leaders, surgeons, you know, talking about this, talking about emotions, humanity, the trauma that we see. We come to medicine with trauma, because we all do, 60% of us have some trauma. Then we have training, which is kind of traumatic and dehumanizing. And then we see and observe from patients, you know, the trauma, the deaths, the complications. And there's no room to process this. There's no space for us. And we're just like robots. So we have to have more of these conversations to normalize. And I've seen, I mean, I recently read an article from a hand surgeon talking about crying is okay. So you see these leaders, right? Like they are leaders. You are a surgeon, you're a man talking about this, having these conversations and more and more people start saying, oh yeah, yeah, we, we do have to process all this trauma. We need space for our emotions. We need to be more humane in medicine, not just for patients, but for each other, for the physicians who are here because we're leaving. In 2021, 100,000 physicians left medicine in the United States and we have 1 million physicians. So that's 10%. A physician just left. So we are going to get more of that, more of that, if we you know, don't change this culture that is you know, not in a great place right now. But there's you know, hopefully room to grow and to improve. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. You hit on a really important point there, and that is that there are a limited number of physicians, and therefore the competition, particularly for the prestigious quote-unquote residencies, is very high. And so a manager might say to somebody, well, look, if it doesn't suit you, uh, you're welcome to leave as 10% of you have left already. We've got others in the wings who will step in. Do you find that is happening or do you think the narrative is really changing? I mean, of course, you can find instances where people have been told, okay, you don't want to do it, somebody else will do it. Of course. I, I think we have to acknowledge that that definitely has happened and will happen and that is a risk. But then we have to ask ourselves, to what cost are we willing to stay in those situations? Because at the end of the day, the cost is our health, our own health. The cost is our lifespan that gets shortened because we are flooded with stress, worry, fear. And we're really every day going to work with one of these emotions, fear, stress, worry, scarcity. And that is not benign. Chronic stress is real and is going to cause a slew of medical conditions. And not just as a primary care doctor, you're going to see those diseases. You're going to see them in all specialties. As a urologist, I see the effects of stress in a lot of things, in a lot of the diseases I treat. So physicians are not exempt, and we're running in high levels of cortisol every day from stress or worry or a fear that they're not going to have this. But we got to say, I can't do this. And it may mean you don't have that fancy job, but you have a different job. It may mean you have to reframe what success means to you. What is your priority? Is it health or is it all the money in this? Because many times you can make these changes, but you don't want to because it's going to mean less money or less prestige. 
but then you'll have to make that decision what is most important because when you die yes you're going to be replaced the next day too and you're not going to care about all the toys you have all those cars all the purses whatever you purchase it's going to be like left here on earth while you're somewhere else so you don't take any of this but your health is the most important thing you have and when you're having all these diseases stroke heart attack autoimmune problems from the chronic stress you don't really enjoy your life because you're going to doctor to doctor to doctor because of the stress so and many people wait until they get the heart attack many people wait to change until they get burnout or this and maybe they make a change maybe that's a signpost hello listen to your body hello listen to what's going on make a change but many people don't, you know, even if they get cancer, they keep doing the same thing. And that's okay. We have our own journey. But I hope that people don't wait till that total burnout, that complete stress, that cancer diagnosis to make a change and prioritize their self-care, their routine exams, their screening, their basic blood work as physicians for us to do for ourselves. I think you've turned a corner in the conversation in the sense that I'm definitely with you now because what you're talking about is taking agency. What you're talking about is not being ashamed of going in the cheap seats in the theater, not being ashamed of having the secondhand car or wearing the clothes out of a an op shop or whatever it happens to be. There is a feeling among doctors and particularly among people who aspire to be doctors, that in order to succeed, you have to be living on that particular street, in that particular part of town, and you have to be working 18 hours a day in order to achieve that. What you're saying and what many of our colleagues are now saying is that is not sustainable. Well, I think it's not sustainable in in many respects. I mean, people can do it for a long time and, and say, oh, that's successful. But then again, we're looking at external validation for our worth. So we're looking like, why do we have this thought that having this car, this house, this job, what is that thought like deep inside? Where is that belief? Does that make you like have worth or is it worth within? Because if you have the worth within all these other things on the outside, don't make you any more valuable and worthy as a person, as a soul. So Again, it's sort of like thinking about these questions like, why are you doing it? Because I'm not saying be austere and let go of all your things that you have earned and your comfort and your homes. No, that, those are important and keep them. But just think about at least once, why are you striving to get all this? Is it trying to validate your worth or is it what? And when you are doing that, is that at a cost for your health or not? And is that taking time away from your family, from your kids? Do you even see your kids? Do you not? Do you think just not seeing your kids, but like buying them gifts, that's gonna replace like your presence? I mean, what are you doing? Just, you can do that. But I guess think about like why or how you're doing things in life. And then you make the decision that you want. But you gotta reframe success. You gotta reframe what is my worth and my value. And it is the world always sees value on the external and all these fancy diplomas and all these pieces of paper. But without them, you are still a worthy being. You're still a worthy human being. But you have to really believe that. And when we don't, we really are looking for 
oh, this house, now I have this car, now I'm important, now I have this title, now I'm the chief, oh, I'm just more important. But, but the reality is that you really are more important when you had it or when you don't. And when that is taken away, then who are you? Because when we were through COVID and you were not operating as a surgeon, now you're not operating. So are you still a surgeon? Are you still valuable? Who are you? And people went into crisis, existential crisis, because now you, who are you? What am I supposed to do? Where's your value? How are you contributing? But having these things are temporary. When they're taken away, if you, ha- you should still have the same amount of joy and happiness and worth within you, whether you have them or not, because they're temporary. They're not going to be there forever. You're not going to be a surgeon forever. You're not going to have that same car. Maybe you'll get an accident and you won't have it. So when it's not there, is your whole happiness gone? No, you got to put your happiness and your worth into things that are not external, but they're internal. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Are you seeing a lot of this now being demonstrated by junior doctors, making choices that you applaud because they were not choices that were made by your generation or the generation before you because people frame things very differently. Do you feel that we are now turning a corner in medicine? I think that, yes, I think you know, change is slow, especially in medicine. It's very slow. It doesn't happen overnight. People really have to do things over and over and over until they kind of accept and let go, like, oh, I don't have all the answers. Maybe there's a different way. And sort of like soldiers, they just march, march, and don't look up and don't ask why. But I do think that is changing. I do think junior doctors are putting more boundaries and saying, like, I'm not going to do that, or I don't want to come in Saturday, or they really are testing the waters. And I do think they're doing that a lot more. And even in my generation, I have, you know, one of my colleagues just had a baby and he's a man and he took three months, three months of paternity leave. And I really applaud that because I have never seen that. And the other doctors could have done the same because we all had children, you know, have small children, all of us, and we all had them at the same time frame most and nobody else did. And they could have, they had the time. They had the ability, so they just didn't. And that's okay. That's Everybody has their personal choices, but I'm saying I'm seeing that change. And then that gives permission for other men to say, well, maybe I could take, you know, more than a day off when I have a baby. <laughs> maybe I can take a month or, you know, more time to be there with my child. So I'm seeing that a little more, and I've never seen that before. Again, 100,000 physicians leaving. Something's going on, right? 10% of the workforce is leaving we are saying what is important to us what do we want do we have to make a change because this is no longer working because if it was it would have stayed but it's not so if they're gonna leave and do something to maybe outside of medicine great for their sanity if they're gonna spend that time to recover and maybe come up with solutions when they're more clear-minded fantastic but there has been a shift and COVID gave people the time to pause, to think about hopefully what's important, to think about like, what are we doing here? Is this sustainable? Where do we want to go? And I think it was a blessing really for that pause that was forced because otherwise we wouldn't have done it. And people are having more of these conversations that I have not seen 
definitely I think COVID really has brought a lot of this more to light. With Zoom exploding, you know, people are connecting, amplifying the messages. When we didn't do this, you know, even three years ago, as much Zoom, as much of this, that really wasn't around as much. And now we're seeing that. People are coming together, collaborating, saying, we've got to be disruptive thinkers. We've got to think of a different way to do this. Because burnout is not just in the U.S. It's in the U.K. and Mexico and Africa. You know, all the physicians are feeling these pressures. So something has to change. Daniel Londonio, what you say resonates not just in those countries, but also in Australia. We similarly feel that the time has come for us to stand up and be counted, for us to say there is another way of doing this without patients having to suffer, because patients will suffer whilst ever we are not able to look after ourselves and bring our whole self into our jobs. We have to be there for the patient so that we are able to respond to people's distress. It has been a joy speaking with you today. You are a breath of fresh air, and we wish you every happiness. Thank you so much. I mean, I applaud everything you're doing and just really bringing these conversations to light, really standing up, realizing we all have a voice. We could all contribute. We could all be the change we want to be. Like Andy said, we can all do it, you know, one small change at a time, but it is enough to get everybody else to step up, to rise up and realize we're stronger together. So again, I really appreciate it. Very grateful to be here. Thank you so much. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.